right. Hello. How are you, Jeanette? How are you, Michael? Doing very well. Thank you so much, Brandon. Great to be here. Thank you for uh, joining friend. us. Great to be here. Yeah, I love having you both here. And what I love is that we've had a lot of wonderful conversations about some of the topics we're going to talk about today. And then we just kind of said, well, let's make it a podcast because I think other people would want to hear this. And so that's going to be the flow today is it really is just a conversation about practicality, about what do these technologies that everybody's hearing about metaverse, right? Web 3.0, blockchain, and crypto, where today we're really trying to focus on the revolution or the evolution that we'll see with Web 3.0. That's going to that's gonna attract or, or, or be the, the crux of our conversation. But the other pieces, as we know, are really critical because people have said, you know, without blockchain, there is no meta. There is no Web 3.0. And so those are the things we can explore. But for everybody joining us, we have Jeanette Spalding and Michael Nadeau. And uh, you both are from Invenium. What I love about that also is that I had conversations with both of you separately. It's not like Jeanette, you said, you've got to talk to Michael or Michael vice versa. So we've had wonderful yeah. conversations and I just thought it was smart to bring you both together. But Jeanette, why don't you give us a quick introduction to you and, uh, and also maybe to Invenium. And then Michael, if, if what you do is somewhat separate because I know you're in much different divisions, uh, give an introduction for yourself and what you do at Invenium. Sure, Brandon. Uh, so once again, thanks, thanks for having us. My name is Jeanette Spaulding, and I'm CEO of Invenium Asset Management. And what Invenium Asset Management does is feed the ecosystem around Invenium and the blockchain companies and applications that Invenium works with, and that power the core value proposition of the Invenium.io platform. And I come from a, a career in traditional finance. That's where I got my start, actually, in Paris, France lived in Europe for a bit, came back to New York, started my own blockchain and cryptocurrency consulting firm, and then also was in corporate technology for a little bit at Bank of America and BNY Mellon. And when I, so, and when I was in investment, I was at BlackRock. So I've had kind of an equal mix of large corporate, you know, large financial institution experience, startup experience. And I have actually been in the orbit of Invenium since 2018. They were one of my clients over the years that relationship progressed. And I joined Invenium in 2020 in order to launch strategic projects. Uh, and Invenium Asset Management, which is newly launched, is the latest of, of those projects. And we're really excited about growing this activity out as Invenium becomes a larger and larger player in the market. And we are driving now the large players in the market as well. So that's what I'm up to. Um, and I'm really excited to be here. And I'll pass it over to Michael so he can introduce himself. Thanks, Jeanette. Yeah, super excited to be here, Brandon. Uh, thanks for having us on. Um, so I'm Director of Ecosystem Strategy at Invenium. So joined uh, just about three months ago. Uh, I, my background is in commercial real estate. And so um, we're doing some really interesting things with, with private market assets uh, at Invenium with sort of a focus on commercial real estate today. And so Jeanette kind of mentioned, you know, with our Invenium.io platform, really our core business there is allowing private market asset owners to, you know, really aggregate all of the pricing data so that we can value those assets. Uh, we anchor all that data to a blockchain that allows for price discovery to occur and uh, we're also building out an ecosystem where our clients can then take that data asset, you know, bring it onto a tokenization platform, seek outside investment from other investors, automate their 
capital calls, distributions, capital tables, uh, all of that. And really the kind of the, the, the total goal uh, for the end state of this is global trading of private market assets, uh, almost like they're public equities. So, Great. And so Invenium, I love to take complicated things. And a lot of people might think that Invenium is very complicated when it does, and it is. Uh, but, you know, what I understood with Venium is that you take traditionally more illiquid assets and you use data, you use blockchain to monetize those. Is that an oversimplification? Do you want me to take that one, Jeanette? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, so I would say that that is not, I mean, that's essentially what we're doing. So when you think about, you know, like a public equity, you know, they have all these companies that are publicly traded, they have to report you know, quarterly to the SEC and, and market participants can look at that data and get comfortable around um, what is behind that company. That establishes price discovery, allows liquidity and trading to happen. So we really don't have that infrastructure for private market assets, even though uh, private markets are much larger than, than public markets. So really what kind of Invenium is enabling and really blockchain technology is kind of the tech that, that's allowing this to happen. Um, but we use AI to, to really automate the process of gathering. So for, if you think of a commercial real estate property to price that asset, you know, appraiser needs to gather the financial statements, the capital project data, the environmental data, the forecast, the budgets, everything that would go into that building. They need to understand that, apply a discount rate to it, pr price the asset, get a third, third party mark on it. So Invenium is essentially automating that process of gathering all of that data and then pinning all that data into a blockchain. Now, now that's something that the owner can control, can move, can move on to a tokenization platform, uh, create a, a digital asset that represents that building. Um, you can potentially fractionalize that, seek outside investment, manager, capital tables, uh, cap calls, distributions, all that. So, so you're right. Um, it is there. There's kind of a big story to it, but at the end of the day, we're we're delivering data that allows asset owners to to establish price discovery and valuation which will yeah. lead to more liquid markets. And when we talked about this, I said, absolutely no commercials uh, in any of the podcasts I ever do. And that is definitely not the case. What I want people to understand is how blockchain technology is going to affect our economies, our markets, the traditional uh, uh, tradings that we've done and, and how we've worked with commodities. So uh, like I said, I try to really oversimplify things. And the two of you, we've had a lot of really good conversations on LinkedIn about blockchain about not 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 in venium really it's been about these different uh technologies and how they're going to affect our markets and the one that we really wanted to touch on and we're what like seven minutes in we're just getting to the topic is <laughs> is web 3.0 so i tried to pull a really traditional definition of web 3.0 and the evolution and i want you both to give me some feedback maybe Jeanette, you could start but the oversimplification is web 1.0 was really read-only. People put information online, you went and you could access that information, a digital library of sorts, right? Web 2.0 was where you were allowed to read and write. So you connected people, you connected information, and we've connected uh, e-commerce, right? There, there's a, 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 a buy and sell aspect to it. Web 3.0, when we talked about, and Jeanette, you had said, well, this that's a little too simple for me was that it's read, write, and execute, where you connect people, you connect information, but there's a heavy frictionless element to it, uh, whether it be AI or ML, that allows people to connect very quickly. It 
And, and blockchain is really the evolution in my mind of all of these technologies. There's this great convergence, right? Of technology, of hardware, of software. But blockchain is what has allowed the exchange in the commerce, I really think that evolved Web 3.0. I don't think AR and VR got a very good shake over the last few years. And I think now they're gonna get their chance to really move into that XR, that extended reality and, and usher in Web 3.0. What are your thoughts on that definition? And share your definition of Web 3.0 for somebody who understands the internet, understands technology, but it's not at the level that you both are functioning at. Sure. Yeah. Um, so to address your comment that I, I, I was mentioning that I think the definition you just gave, which is incredibly helpful, I think, for those who are just stepping into this world, um, but might be a little bit too simple in the sense that maybe simple is not the right word. Maybe it's a little too narrow for my tastes, just because I see Web 3.0 as being having much broader implications uh, and basically paving the way towards new ways to organize the economy and society. So really earth shattering, world changing stuff. Um, at the very you know, level of society. And the reason for that is in addition to you know, the Web 3.0 representing read, write, and execute capabilities, there's also this concept of incentivization, which is applied differently in Web 3.0 than it has been in, in previous iterations. So now, thanks to Web 3.0, because with blockchain, oftentimes the data is transferred simultaneously with actual monetary value. This allows for new incentivization models for the creators of data, the creators of applications um, who own their own data and are able to, at the same time, transmit data and receive value in the same transaction. And on top of that, because Web 3.0 is composable, which I'm not going to get into right now, but hopefully we'll have time to delve into that later. Um, but because it's composable, that means that you can mix and match various aspects of Web 3.0 elements together in new ways, um, but maintain that trail back to all the original pieces. That value is actually always going to come back to the original owners of the data, which is a complete shift in incentivization from current Web 2.0 paradigms where we are basically anyone who uses the internet is is getting their data sold by you know any number of of entities outside of them and not seeing that value come back to them in web 3.0 anyone who participates in this new version of the web will own their own data own their own output and also be able to incentivize it at the same time that allows for more fair and equitable ways of organizing business structures, organizations, governance structures, societies, groups of people, everything. We can do business differently. We can do government differently because of this more equitable incentivization and organizational structure that's powered by Web3. And so really what you're saying, if I can simplify very uh, uh, high level intellectual speak there, uh, is access for the disenfranchised, decentralization, Meaning, let's put it in real practical terms. Somebody that wants to produce incredible graphics for a large brand like Coca-Cola now could have a decentralized platform that would allow them to develop that for them, maybe answer an RFP, and then be incentivized, whether it be short-term or long-term via smart contracts, that they could be getting ongoing revenues from this, and they're not having to go through the traditional intermediaries. 
Exactly. They're not having to go through the traditional gatekeepers and they're also not having to trust that those gatekeepers are giving them a fair shake and are being fair because the smart contract, all of the terms are written in the smart contract. Everyone's aware of what's happening and agreeing to it. And uh, in most protocols to change a smart contract is going to take the agreement of everyone participating in that protocol. So the terms are set up front and agreed to by everyone. Uh, and there's not this actual subjective intermediary in the middle that can change the terms. You know, again, kind of going back to Web 2.0, there's always a big uproar every time a company like YouTube changes its terms and changes the monetization structure for its creators, right? Like, and there's this, it's always seen as kind of unfair because you have this single entity that's deciding the livelihoods of the people that are actually making this platform popular. Uh, with Web 3.0, we start to minimize that because there are there is an, an ability for not only for developers and people, you know, everyday people to create their own platforms, but then the creators of the content that go on the platforms are are participating in these decentralized models, as you mentioned. And the decentralization aspect of it takes that power away from a centralized entity that we see in, in Web 2.0. Do you feel the impetus or the production of Web 3.0, and you can say yes or no, is really driven by blockchain and the decentralized ledger technology, what we call DLT? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we need that technology, the underlying technology that disintermediates uh, the central intermediaries that currently currently exist both in the financial services and, you know, entertainment and, and internet companies uh, currently all, you know, everything that we interact with usually is, is governed by a centralized authority. And so blockchain, <clears throat> excuse me, blockchain disintermediates these centralized authorities, um, gives power back to those who, have, who are creating the protocols and those who create the content. And so we are able to live more decentralized lives. Wonderful. All right. So supplementation, Michael, uh, rebuttals, what do you, what would you add to that that you think we missed? I thought that was really good. Um, I really like where Jeanette's going with just the incentive structure um, changes that Web3 is introducing. So I'm going to take a little step back. So I, I try to look at, and I think you asked a great question there, like what, what is the thing that, that is sparking Web3? It's blockchain and technology. And if you look at blockchain technology and kind of go back in kind of recent history of um, open source technologies, um, what you tend to see is like this, this process where a new open source technology gets introduced and you see this collapse and compress, compression of costs um, associated with that and a new layer of value creation that is created. So um, like if you go back to 1970s, you had the, the microprocessor was introduced that allowed anybody to build computer hardware. So IBM had a monopoly on computer hardware. The microprocessor is, cre is created as an open source uh, computer hardware. So any entrepreneur can come in and build and that disrupts um, IBM and that creates that new layer of value. And then if you fast forward to the, the early nineties, we had Linux come out and Linux is an open source computer software. Um, and so that, allows any developer engineer to build open source computer software that competes with Microsoft's Windows operating system. Again, that's a closed system. The open system disintermediates the closed system, creates a new layer of value. And now you see 30 years later, Linux is, is everywhere. Um, so I think when you look at blockchains, you know, we, so with open source um, software and hardware, we introduced the internet, 
uh, and that starts to take off with Web 2.0, and we get these walled gardens of data, and that's where Google, Netflix, Amazon sit. They're all essentially walling off data and then charging for access to that data. So as users, we get to use these free applications, um, but we don't control our state, um, and so we don't control our data, and we're essentially the products of all of these applications. So blockchains are coming in. That's another open source uh, layer that is disintermediating these walled gardens of data, which are closed closed networks. Um, so, and then when you start to get into that and see, you know how the incentive structures start to shift. Um, you see, you know, in a Web two company, you basically have two stakeholders. You have the founders of the company and the equity owners of the company. Um, in blockchain, you have the founders of these networks, you have the early seed investors, and then you have the users who get to access these networks really kind of at the seed A uh, series uh, level. Um, so it just really changes um, kind of the incentive structures there. And then the users are also participating in governance and ownership of, of these networks. So uh, I'll stop there, but that's kind of how I sort of, from a really high level sort of view it. And I'll give and people can I just keywords. Yep, go ahead. Just want to add something onto that because I really like how Michael also broke down, you know, the participants in each of these models. And I think one of the unique things about Web3 is that the users, the founders, the investors are oftentimes there's a lot more overlap with Web3 and who those those players are. Oftentimes the users are the investors um, and they necessarily have to be because with Web3 protocols, usually the way that you gain access to the, to the protocol services is holding the token. And so there's almost a necessity to actually, if you're going to use the platform, also be a stakeholder in that platform. And those tokens often, some, not always, but often come with governance responsibilities. So you're a shareholder, you're a stakeholder, you, you, it's, you have the responsibility of caretaking of the protocol as someone that can participate in voting about what happens in the protocol. You are financially incentivized. And you're using it, so you have these overlap of roles in Web three that you don't see in in even not even talking about Web two companies, but companies in general in our traditional economy. So when I talk about paradigm shifts of economy thanks to these new models, that really what Michael said really gets to the heart of it because we're reimagining what it means to uh, to build companies and share values in companies. And to give some people some key terms in case they're a little nowhere to the space. These are things that they can look up, learn about security tokens versus utility tokens. Utility tokens allowing you to, uh, to really be a part of an environment to accomplish a task, to execute a task, you utilize these tokens, maybe like, let's say like laundromat tokens, right? They're not really of value, but they allow you to do your laundry. Uh, and sorry guys to really oversimplify this. Um, whereas the security tokens are maybe more like a quarter or a, a stock in a company. And, and those are two good things that people can look up. One of the things I wanna to touch on, if you're talking about decentralization, you're talking about removing the intermediaries. I also would like for people to look up dApps, as we know as decentralized applications, DAOs, which are starting to kind of chime out there, decentralized autonomous organizations where they have no central uh, leadership or, or structure, um, those are utilizing the blockchain technologies that allow people to really stand up companies and stand up organizations that do not look like a traditional Google. People can go look those up. We won't touch on those. But with Web 
is this essentially carpet bombing Google, Facebook? I mean, we're talking, a lot of people have talked about how the dreamers have said this completely uh, takes away the intermediaries and allows individuals to profit off of their data and their engagement with the new web 3.0 environment. Whereas before the intermediaries profited from that, right? They were just, uh, just parts, pawns in a, in a system. Give me a, your, uh, your ideas of, of timeline and is that really what you feel is going to occur? Because Web 3.0 wiped them out, developed this people economy of, of direct-to-consumer or brand-to-provider, service provider, uh, and it, does that happen immediately? Like, How do you see that evolution? I think this goes back to something that we spoke about before. And if I might kind of throw this back at you, Brandon, if, if you would be so kind as to share your vision of the semantic web that we previously discussed, because it directly correlates, I think, with this question of Google and timing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I know we had, we've had this discussion previously. Would you mind sharing that? Well, yeah, the, the definition earlier that Web 3.0, and this is a simplistic version that many people use, is that the semantic web Web 3.0 is just the matching of uh, intent. Instead of matching words, I put it in a Google platform and I get a return based on what may or may not be of interest to me based on other people's data and, and the, the, the algorithms and the AIs and all the other bots. Uh, it is more of matching your true intent for what you're searching for. And that ability to utilize AI and machine learning in a much more robust way provides a very bespoke web system, internet system, the web 3.0. But when we had talked, you had said, well, that is, you know, once again, Brandon, way too oversimplified. I need you to go back to school and learn a little bit more <laughs> about this. So that's what we kind of talked yes. about. Yes, but yeah, and, and to, to your point, the reason I wanted to kind of go back to that earlier conversation is because I think your question in terms of will this replace Google um, is directly connected to the evolution of semantic web that you highlighted in that previous conversation, because for a lot of people, this concept of semantic web has been around for quite a long time. There have been, you know, quite a few, there's been a lot of effort that's gone into defining, you know, data models and metadata that would go into a, a resource definition framework that would power semantic web capabilities. And the, the one advantage that Google has had with its natural language processing is that it does not have to define in advance the data models, because that's what's always been something that's kept the semantic web from really taking hold is, is that it actually requires an organization to go out and define standards, right? It's like standards of the data models. And then they have to go and they have to categorize all the metadata in all of these, you know, different properties and classes to create this ontology that can be understood by machines. And that is incredibly difficult. It's a very large undertaking. If you think of all the data that exists in the world, that would require so much effort collectively. And it's always been, well, how do we incentivize that? No one's getting paid to do it. Um, data changes all the time. So we're always having to keep up with new data. Like it just seemed like an impossible task, which has been one of the obstacles towards transitioning towards semantic web. And one of the reasons why the natural language processing of Google has won out uh, so far. As we see now with the composability of Web3, which means that we have these Legos, we have money Legos, we have data Legos that could be clicked and connected uh, with each other. I see the data Legos that 
that are made possible by Web3 as being the way that we transition to this web, this semantic web mindset, because instead of trying to define the standards in advance and define the data, all of the data models that we could possibly have and all of the metadata that the world could possibly need in advance, which in my mind is, is impossible, um, with composability, we can actually in real time create the data models and populate it with the data we need at that time. So, um, and with, with the Legos, you know, as you click something into place and say, say I make a Lego castle, but then I, I look at it and I'm like, oh, actually I want there to be a moat. I want there to be, you know, some two castles instead of one castle. I don't have to destroy my original castle. I just build onto it, right? And I, I build new elements to create a, a wider and wider vision. And all of a sudden I have a Lego town. To me, that is actually how uh, the transition from Google to a semantic web vision needs to take place. It needs to take place from the bottom up with people creating the data models and populating the data themselves as we go along based on their particular needs in a given situation. And blockchain allows for that. The composability that is um, that blockchain enables is what we actually need to make a semantic web work. It's just not the semantic web that was proposed specifically by Tim Berners-Lee. So it's not the sort of let's define all the data models in advance and populate them. This is like from the ground up together as a global population, we get to make the meaning for ourselves and acknowledge that it's going to evolve over time, but it's okay because our, our technology now allows us to click all these Legos together in real time to create the models that we need. Michael, do you see that as the thing of dreamers and anarchists and uh, dystopian type of individuals that we have these Lego pieces. And remember, this is not a yes fest. I know you both have to go to the corporate retreat together at some point. <laughs> uh, so, you know, but uh, rebuttals and, and uh, changes of, of mentality or, or thought process is, is more than welcome. Do you think that is this, does Google or Facebook or these intermediaries just find a way to merger and acquisition themselves uh, acquire open source technology or just run over these new platforms, let's just keep it that simple, that allow this new web to come into place as you know, Jeanette had talked about. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, thank you for that, Jeanette. That was awesome. I knew I would learn something uh, by jumping <laughs> on here for an hour with you. That was cool. I haven't really thought about it that way. That was, that made a lot of sense to me. Um, to answer your question, Brandon, I think, you know, I think the answer is yes, a lot of these, you know, status quo incumbent industries are that are not um, innovating right now are kind of in the in the line of, uh, uh, you know, kind of in, in innovations way, I guess, um, you know, but when you think about this, when you look back at like, say, when we introduced email, for example, um, you know, the post office was the primary means through which we shared information and um, the post office just didn't just go away because email came out, right? People still, there's still people that don't necessarily use email and um, that's still around. So I think when you, when you look at kind of which industries are, are in harm's way, I would say, you know, the financial sector is probably number one. And that's probably the first one that will be impacted. Um, so like the evolution at, of DeFi, which is decentralized finance. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So when you look at some of the DeFi protocols and a lot of this is built on Ethereum today, there's a few, couple other um, layer one blockchains, Avalanche, um, Solana, that are that we're seeing some interesting activity happening on. But with smart contracts, which is really like the way people can think about a smart contract is like a, 
a vending machine where you know there's no intermediary in the middle. You just have something that can execute based on a couple inputs, right? So B9 equals Snickers bar, right? There's no intermediary there. And that's really what these smart contracts are doing in, in the finance world in terms of lending and borrowing, insurance, payments. Um, and so like that to me is the area that is, is probably prime for, for disruption initially. I think NFTs, what's happening with NFTs is really interesting, especially when you look at uh, gaming um, and entertainment industry. So like what, what you're seeing with artists, with musicians, um, and, and what we can do with NFTs within games is really allow users to control their in-game assets, um, control their abilities, monetize those, those things within games. So you can kind of create these like economies within games, which I think is super interesting. Gaming tends to be on the cutting edge of, of innovation typically. So I would look there. Um, and then, you know, social networks. So, so like, is Google going to be disrupted um, in the next five years? Like I would say probably not. Uh, that would probably be social networks and what you're seeing with like Facebook. You're already seeing them, you know, rebrand to metaverse. So they're, they're already moving towards this next kind of iteration of what a social network is going to look like. I think the big different, the big kind of unknown currently, and we don't know what Facebook is going to do, but are they going to build that on public blockchains, right? Which is open source, permissionless, anybody can access those, or are they going to try to build something on a more private closed network, like what they're using today? So I think that's the big um, question there. Um, but that's kind of how I would think about um, sort of the cadence of disruption that, that this tech is going to cause. So finance, gaming, I think healthcare is a big one personally. Healthcare, yeah. Uh, what would you add to that, Jeanette? And then once you answer that question, help people to understand what the next few years will look like. Am I going to notice a drastic difference in my daily activity and how I engage with the internet, how I engage with others, how I conduct my personal business? Uh, we don't have to go in particular industries, but a broad strokes of you know the other industries you think will be impacted by this. And then build the practicality out for people about what that looks like time-wise. Uh, am I going to next year have to uh, be on a number of cryptocurrency platforms, understand the space, have wallets that I utilize? Like, do I have to learn all this tomorrow? And how does that kind of break down for people? Yeah, I don't think that, you know, from one day to the next, you're going to all of a sudden have to onboard yourself on, onto complex cryptocurrency and blockchain protocols. Already what we see is one of the impediments to widespread adoption of, of Web3 technology is that it is fairly difficult still to onboard yourself onto a protocol. You have to, basically you have to learn all of this new lingo. You have to conceive of money in a whole new way. You have to oftentimes be the, the, um, the person who holds your own assets via a, a wallet. So, you know, whether that's a cold storage or hot storage wallet, and we don't have to get into what exactly that means, but, you know, just- but people you can have go to, look them up. <laughs> yes, please go look, look up these terms if they're unfamiliar to you. Um, and, um, and so there's just a lot of right now that has not yet been abstracted away. And I really, I think this was something Michael kind of referred to earlier is that you, you often as technology advances, you have these layers of abstraction that kind of get built on top of the technology as it progresses. And at the state of that we are right now with Web3, 
we're not at the abstraction layer where it's very user-friendly. We're not there yet. Um, we still have to oftentimes like plug directly into protocols. Whereas in perhaps I'd say the next couple of years, we will have more sophisticated graphical user interfaces, which is basically how I interact with, you know, a program on my computer. We'll have things that are more consumer friendly to use that people won't have to feel like they're interacting with a blockchain protocol. So blockchain is going to more and more fade into the background and be the engine underlying a lot of different technologies and protocols and therefore and people won't even really know or need to know that they're using it and that's kind of one of the things that whenever people talk about blockchain is being so complex and it's never going to take off because people don't understand it but how many people understand how the internet works how many people actually understand how wi-fi works if you ask someone like explain to me how your wi-fi works i think you get a lot of blank stares right so we don't need everyone in the world to understand blockchain. We need the builders, obviously, to understand it and be passionate about it. And we need the people who are investing to you know, have a fairly good understanding of what they're investing in. But the users don't actually need to understand blockchain. They just need to know the value add, what it's getting them, and um, how to interact with the user interfaces. And that's the job for the builders. So now, you know, the next couple of years, we're going to see the builders go out, build these user interfaces that make it simple simpler, much simpler to use Web3 protocols. And just to kind of go back to what Invenium is doing, I think one of the, the really special things about in the IO platform is that it is very easy to use and, and you don't feel like you're using blockchain, even though blockchain is a critical part of, of the software. And I think that's where it's headed. And particularly to, to answer your first question, um, as we see like the B2B sectors, so that's going to be huge, like enterprise software and things like that transition to blockchain, that's going to be critical because we're not going to expect to train up all the employees of a company on the intricacies of blockchain. That's just not going to happen. And, and it would be wasteful, in fact, for that to happen. So uh, in order for large scale enterprise and institutional adopt adoption of blockchain technologies, we need easier ways to access services that are powered by blockchain. I wish I could speak like that. So I, I have all that same knowledge in my head, but the way you say it just makes <laughs> me feel like I'm in third grade. Uh, <laughs> so really what you're talking about, I, I wanna pull up the key pieces, user interface, which a lot of people don't know, but that's how you engage with a software. I don't yeah. think uh, so improvements in the user interface, improvements in the technology, really improvements on the on-ramps and off-ramps. I explained this to a friend of mine, a little older gentleman, and I said, imagine, with blockchain technology, we've got these great vehicles, but Eisenhower hasn't built his highway system yet. And what we're trying to build is that highway system, the ramps to get onto it and to, uh, to commute and to utilize those high-speed technologies, right? Um, but I, I think 100% that that's absolutely key. Anything you would add to that, Michael, that you think is critical to the evolution uh, or any prognosticating, you know, what, what do you see as an evolution in the space. Yeah, I think you just made a great point there with, with like the, the highway analogy. So like when you look at the space right now, you have a number of layer one blockchains and like you could almost look at these as like they're parallel highways almost. And for the ecosystem to, to grow and, and, and build out, you need you need partnerships, you need the ecosystem to, to form, you need interoperability, you need you know, companies, and that's that's a messy process, right? That nobody's coordinating that. It's just a bunch of entrepreneurs building. Um, and so that's one thing we focus on in Invenium as well, is trying to find ecosystem partners that 
ultimately benefits our clients uh, and what our core business does and, and helps develop that, that ecosystem. So I think, you know, when you look at, I think I saw a stat that um, there's currently like 18,000, uh, you know, Web3 developers out there. There's 20 million uh, IoT developers today. So when you kind of step back from it, we're very early here. Like the adoption phase is happening pretty fast. Um, I think almost twice as fast as the internet. But I think a lot of people, the early users of the internet, remember when you know you were on the, you were on AOL and someone called the house and you would get kicked off of AOL, right? I, I feel you don't like remember that, do you? Let's be honest. You remember that? <laughs> I'm just old enough. Just old enough. But I, I also remember the know, dial tone. That's very yeah. close to my heart. Yeah. The the yeah. modem noise. Yeah. Somebody made right. a uh, mixed tape or mixed tape. See, I'm talking about dating myself. Uh, a mixed song and it had that noise in it and my brain just <laughs> went straight back to the 90s. Nostalgia. Yeah. yeah, so it's good to be reminded of it. Like when you use, like Jeanette mentioned, if you use a, a cold storage wallet, like a Trezor or a Ledger, like we're not going to be using that. Like it's, it's it feels like, like when you plug that thing into your computer and you press the buttons on it to access your private keys, you know, that's not going to be the thing we're using in five, 10 years. So um, I think it's just good to have that perspective. It's still super early. And when, when this reaches full adoption, like Jeanette said, the people that are using it won't even know they're using it. You know, it's just, it'll become, when it gets so easy to use and it just makes sense because it's better and it's easier to use, that's it, it's over, you know? So we're not even close to there yet. You mean you don't remember all of your private and public keys, letter for letter? <laughs> I mean, I, I do, but. <laughs> you have to look at all those letters before you send something. I, I have to check it five, six, seven, eight times, you know, every time, so. There's and then no the lengths, the right. lengths to which you, you have to go to protect your seed phrase. I mean, I don't envision a future in which every person who uses a Web3 protocol has a safe in their house dedicated to storing their seed phrases. Like this is, this is something that probably get abstracted away at some point. Yeah. Well, and that's a great point to bring it to practical kind of uh, practice, uh, way that people can practically understand it is with the bank, they keep these ledgers of how much money goes in and out. And if you forget your bank account number or you lose your license, change your name, whatever, you go into the bank, they look at their records, they verify. Now for the, especially the blockchain space, those pieces aren't really in place. So if I lose my private key, a lot of people don't understand private key is, is how you access your funds, your wallet, how you send money to keep it overly simplistic. Um, and to manually copy that, paste it, to send something, you send it to the wrong address. And for most people uh, and for most protocols or, or blockchain uh, platforms, that is lost for good. Now, there's some evolutions. You can go look that up. Um, but that is the piece that I think is, is what we're talking about. That is going to take time, two, three years to have those pieces in place to allow that user interface or that ease of use. Uh, that I think is is really critical. What else, anything else you guys think that is critical right now that's missing in the space? I think interoperability is one that I'd really like to see. You know, a PS4, an Xbox, they don't, they're, they're really closed off environments for the most part, but you see that all of those environments start connecting. So if I have an NFT in Call of Duty of a uniform or a gun, where I own a digital asset that I can take, I can sell, I can move across different uh, uh, ecosystems. Is that what you see really as Web 3.0? Is that opening up of, 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 of all of those elements? 
Absolutely. Interoperability is key here. And there are already a number of, you know, cross-chain bridges that allow you to take assets from one blockchain to another blockchain. There are always security concerns when you do that, because since blockchains actually are highly dependent upon confirmation of the state of a blockchain at any given time, once you start actually transferring assets from one blockchain to another, you just have to be really careful about how you're keeping records on both blockchains. Otherwise, the state of a blockchain uh, on either side could be compromised. So you, there are some complex security concerns that come into play when you're talking about bridging assets across different blockchains. However, the good news is that these protocols do already exist and these complex challenges are already being addressed uh, by a number of protocols as well as by Invenium um, in terms of how the, the products that Invenium is working on to address and uh, provide ways to take assets from one chain to the next. I definitely believe in a, a multi-chain future uh, I, I personally am chain agnostic and at Invenium, we're chain agnostic um, and we believe in the power of being able to carry assets and transact and, and build things um, on any chain having, you know, because a lot of chains, as, as you probably know, Brandon, a lot, you know, each chain has its own kind of speciality or what it's good at or who it's serving and people have their favorite chains and things like that. And there are certain jobs that some chains are great for and other jobs that they're horrible for. And, and then other chains can be better at those jobs. And so I think it's going to take that level of interoperability that's currently being worked on um, and perfected in order to allow people to choose the right chain for the right job. Yeah, because I think there's some 12,500 different chains, tokens, coins out there right now. And I think there's definitely going to be a dot-com style bubble uh, that will come from that. The true providers, I think, will be distilled down and you'll see a lot of chains disappear, a lot of different projects disappear. And then I feel like that's where, and where did that happen with dot-com? It was like late 90s, early 2000, where Facebook and Google started to show up. Um, and our listeners don't know this, but we've jumped absolutely all over the place, but it's been a really good flow. Uh, but I do want to go back to something I wanted to start off right from the beginning, which for me, Michael, I'd like to get your thoughts, and this is just a personal uh, belief. I feel that this will have a greater impact than something like the Industrial Revolution. I think it will have a greater impact than the internet had in our daily lives. I personally think we are running into another uh, roaring 20s into, I don't know, what, what is there a term for the 30s? <laughs> um, that, that was the going, Great Depression. You know, <laughs> no, no, no. You, uh, somebody said that to me before. I'm like, no, no, let's be positive. Um, but no, that's that's a great point. It, it, I'd love to know your thoughts, Jeanette, around that. Uh, are we kind of going to run that yeah. same uh, trajectory? But Michael, based on the question before that, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, there's a, I feel like there's a lot of, it's not just blockchain. There's a lot of things, I think, going on in society that are kind of combining. So the things that I try to look at um, are, you know, the macroeconomic picture, and you can look at debt to GDP and long-term debt cycles and, and all that. And that's where we're kind of towards the end of, of that. Um, I think the debt to GDP is as high as it was uh, just after World War II. So there's a bunch of, I won't go into all that, but there's a bunch of uh, implica implications with interest rates and, and all that. So 
you know, you have that going on. We have inflation as a result of that. You have what, what COVID created and really accelerated a lot of these trends that were already in place, uh, particularly with a lot of these technologies. And, and we've seen these, uh, a lot of growth in the blockchain space um, as a result. So you have like the, those two things happening. You have like a, we, we're going through a demographic shift as well. So the baby boomers, I think the last of the baby boomers are going to be retiring um, around 2030. So you have the younger generations that are stepping in and they have very different views um, on how we should do things, right? Yeah. So a lot of the institutions that were created after World War II um, are sort of not trusted as much by the younger generations today. They don't feel like these institutions are serving them. Um, and so- It's like the DeFi movement we talked about is what you're referencing. Yeah, um, yeah. So, and so you just start to, you start to combine all these things, then you throw crypto and blockchain into the mix of all that. And it's just, it's kind of um, like throwing a, a match on, on some gasoline. So um, I think it's going to be, like you said, there's going to be like massive, massive growth on the other side of this, but getting there will be, will be disruptive, right? Whenever you go through a, a period of change like this, um, it is going to be fun. You know, it's fundamentally disruptive, um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's like creative destruction always leads to um, a, a brighter future. So uh, I'm with you. Yeah. I th I'm with you. I'm really excited about what this technology can do. And we talked about the economic incentive structures and how those can change. I think um, all that's super positive. Um, but there are also incumbents that will try to stop all of this and that will create a lot of the tension and, um, you know, those disruptive periods I, I, would, I would expect to, to play out this decade. Jeanette, tell us we're wrong in some capacity. I no, personally I, think it will be greater than the Industrial Revolution, greater than the Internet. Uh, what, are you, what are your thoughts? I'm sorry to disappoint, but I agree with you completely. Uh, and I agree with Michael. This is absolutely, you know, generation defining, world defining stuff that's happening right now. And, and yeah, beyond generation defining, this is going to be one of the biggest, if not the biggest disruptions that we have yeah. had in the way that we live as human beings in society. And the interesting part of that is that going back to what you were saying about the fourth industrial revolution, which is characterized by the convergence of different technologies. And so, and you've already mentioned, you know, VR and AR, IOT, I think was thrown out at some point, we were talking about blockchain. And the really beautiful thing is that through different web three protocols, which are underpinned by blockchain, we're seeing these different technologies converge. So there are a lot of IOT apps that are built on blockchain rails. A lot of obviously AR, VR, that's you know, the metaverse and that's being built on blockchain rails. So we're seeing actually this convergence that, that, is, that basically defines the fourth industrial revolution is happening thanks to web three protocols that bring together all of these different technologies. And that's really thanks to the power of decentralization because we have this idea of global collaboration that allows people to be more creative, allows them to be incentivized for their good ideas, no matter where they came from. So all of a sudden, you know, we're having greater diversity of thought and creativity and ability to build uh, with people um, collaborating with each other globally in a way that our traditional organizational and economic structures have not permitted before. And, and that's a really, it's just on a human level, it's a really beautiful thing to see. And in terms of accelerating the fourth industrial revolution, it's been critical because a lot of the, the best ideas um, that we've seen and the most creative ideas are coming from a lot of times anonymous developers who have otherwise 
could not find their place in society. And it's showing that everyone in the world actually has their thing that they can contribute regardless. And we are able to kind of like find these good ideas and uplift them and share them and spread them based on their own merits, which is something that is transformative for, for humanity. I love that because many people listening might think that we kind of transitioned off of the Web 3.0 conversation, but these are all the basic elements of what people believe is Web 3.0. Um, last question, because we're kind of running out of time here. I think we're going to have to do a few more of these, just letting you guys know, uh, find, find time in your schedules. Um, Great. Do, do you see that this that that this really incentivizes or builds out the, the engagement of individuals in their own personal economy? What I mean by that, do you see that brands now are going to go directly to consumers, removing those intermediaries and providing that like dystopian bespoke commerce, internet, web 3.0 experience uh, in the next year or two? like next two, three years, maybe. Do we get to that point uh, that most people believe this is meant to get to? Michael, I don't know if that's too broad, but. So specifically in terms of um, brands and, and going direct direct to consumers and NFTs and things like that, is that, is that the question? Yeah, the real kind of motivation incentivization of individuals to work directly with brands and brands to work directly with these consumers and these influencers uh, that you know, love their brands and are part of their brands, getting down to the practical of how might this change my life, this Web 3.0 concept that we talked about. Yeah, I think like I think you'll see like so I think a lot of the brands like Amazon, for example, with like Amazon Prime, like that to me seems like something that would be perfect for an NFT or you know they could issue essentially um, some sort of benefits to their most loyal customers through through an NFT. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of that start to play out. You're seeing a lot of the major brands already starting to get into the, the metaverse. Um, so like when you start to see like the, like the game theory of sort of how, how Web3 plays out, you see it with Bitcoin, you're starting to see it with metaverse stuff. When you start to see big movers um, stepping into the space, it just ends up incentivizing others to come in. So I think, you know, follow um major brands i could see disney issuing nfts to all their you know most loyal customers it allows them just to go direct to their customers and offer um benefits uh through these through these nfts i think ticketing with nfts will be something we'll, we'll probably start seeing uh pretty soon um as far as what else in the next couple of years um yeah, I think that's kind of that's where I would look. Gaming is is going to be on the cutting edge of this as well. Um, and then I just look at I just look at like Bitcoin's adoption cycle and like you know Bitcoin to me is very different from the rest of Web three. Bitcoin's kind of like a monetary um, asset that's really different from Ethereum and everything else, which are more like venture funded um, information networks that use that token as the incentive mechanism for for developers to build decentralized services. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how, I, I, how I'm looking at things for this year, next year, next couple of years. Beautiful. I love it. Uh, Jeanette, kind of ending something that you might have already touched on. What are you most excited about or something you haven't mentioned? And I'd say personally, in terms of how you engage or how you conduct your, your personal commerce, your personal economy, what are you most excited about, whether it be to engage with brand, uh, whether it be what is that? 
can I answer this from a philosophical perspective? You can answer because, it however you want okay. to answer. You can say, <laughs> I, I plead the fifth and have a good day. <laughs> no, no, I definitely have things to say, but I think the thing that really gets me most excited, the thing that drives me at my core is the idea that what we're building with Web3 and with blockchain technologies is going to allow us to address something that I've been thinking about, I've thought about for quite some time uh, called uh, wicked problems. So this is a, a terminology that comes out of the, um, you know, the field of, of sustainability and, and basically confronting the problems of the world on a global scale is that as a society, um, we, there are a certain set of challenges that because they're so interdependent upon one another, like global hunger or like climate change, these, they, they, they have a lot of causes, root causes behind them that overlap. And so it's very hard to untangle them and, and actually address them. Uh, those are called wicked problems. And the, the problem with addressing a wicked problem is that our current ways that we normally try to address a problem is we kind of set out a framework, and we say, okay, well, we're gonna address this, this, this thing. Okay, now we're gonna implement our solution and then we're gonna see if it worked. And with wicked problems, that actually, that approach doesn't really work because you can implement your solution and it's going to fail for one or another reason because this problem is so complex, but you don't know why it failed. And so you have to go back to the drawing board, start another model. And this kind of goes back full circle to what I was saying about the semantic web. The same reason that the, the semantic web as envisioned by Tim Berners-Lee has not been successful thus far is why human beings have a problem addressing wicked problems is that we can't actually, some things are just too complex to try to define them at the outset and then attack it that way in a very systematic way. Some things have to be built from the ground up iteratively and taking into account the multiple feedback loops that are going to happen um, as you're addressing these problems. And I see the ground up nature uh, of blockchain and the decentralization that it facilitates as allowing us to actually, for the first time ever, be able to start to like tackle wicked problems because we have people on the ground seeing solutions where they are locally that will build their own local Legos that can then click into global ecosystems. And in that way, we can actually build these giant decentralized global protocols that can start to address problems that are pervasive uh, and complex. Wonderful answer. A lot better than I I was just going to say it allows me to play Call of Duty and own <laughs> some too. of my skin. That but too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I definitely agree with you. There are so many things and I kind of see it as you know, kind of the old wooden wheels on the on the uh, the coaches that all of those bespoke, all those pieces coming together to a centralized place. As all of those meet in that converge on that one spot that's where Web 3.0 really becomes something in our lives when all of those pieces come together at the right time and allow us to tackle things like that, to allow consumers to work directly with brands, to allow us to monetize ourselves, to allow us to support the disenfranchised or support problems from Boston, wicked problems, right? Um, you know, so that, that's what I think Web 3.0 really is. And it's as uh, if that wheel actually um, is changing with the terrain, right? So this is the, the cool thing about composability in Legos. It's like, not only does the, not only do these elements converge um, and, and form a, a single state that's static, but that wheel is actually going to evolve as the terrain evolves. Um, so you have yeah. something that's constantly making itself better. Well, I want to thank you. I could see all of us slowing down and trying to keep it 
uh, for good for beginners and the advanced. <laughs> so I really appreciate you guys. And I appreciate that people can take this information and they can go learn about DAOs and decentralized apps and DeFi. They know what that means now and go put those pieces together so they can start to see how this will affect them. One of the big ones I want to do a topic on is how this is going to affect industries like digital marketing and dive into that. Uh, I'd love to really dive into what we see DAOs being and how they evolve. And so we can touch on those topics earlier. But I'll go ahead and I'll put your contact information everywhere that we, we have this, which Apple Podcasts and YouTube and Spotify and Google. Uh, and so people can reach out to you and uh, can't thank you guys enough for your time and, and your master's class in, in this space. Hopefully it helps people. So thank you, Jeanette. Thank you, Michael. Uh, Invenium can send me an invoice for your time. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you so I, much, I Brandon. Pay it, but, you know, they could send it. <laughs> Appreciate it. Yeah. And if any of your listeners, I write an, uh, just a free newsletter on the DeFi yeah. space. So if any of your listeners want to check that out, it's a, it's a Substack called the DeFi Reports. So if you just Google DeFi Report Substack, uh, my name uh, should come up. So great. I should have asked. Sorry about that. Jeanette, anything you're working on that you want people to know about or? If anyone wants to follow me on Twitter, that would be great. My Twitter handle is Jeanette Spald, and uh, my name is spelled J-E-A-N-N-E-T-T-E-S-P-A-U-L-D. So there okay. you go. And I'll, I'll go ahead and put that handle under everything so people can click on that, copy, paste it. So great, thank thanks. you all so very much. Awesome. Have a great day. Thanks, Brandon. Talk soon. Appreciate it.